Okay, I think we're going to begin. Um, so this is a very special, we're in a recital hall, a, a theatrical production is going to take place. Um, this will have um, music, maybe a little dance, um, a tremendous amount of exchange of knowledge, and it will involve both you and all of the presenters, okay? So this is a wonderful community event. And to lead this um, is Dr. Mike Sag. I think many of you know Mike from his reputation, uh, um, locally, globally, and of course as the, um, the inventor of the case report, case study format. So Mike is a professor of medicine and associate dean for global health and the Jim Straley's chair in AIDS research at the University of uh, Alabama and Birmingham. Right? Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me back. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, you see on the panel, uh, these are actually the speakers for the entire day, so I'll introduce those you haven't seen so far. So Dr. Anyema Abugwagu, who is uh, from Yale, who will be talking to us a little bit later. I'm going to call him Anyema. Um, and then uh, Melanie Thompson, who's from Atlanta, and Arca, and Tim you've met, and Raj Gandhi, who's from uh, Mass General, and you'll be hearing from him later today. So the way we do this, for those of you who haven't seen this before, is that I'll go through a series of questions, and these questions are those that I accumulate over the course of a year. Um, so every year it's kind of refreshed. Sometimes the questions are the same as you've seen before, but the answers likely have changed. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have some fun with that. Um, if these are real case, real questions that have come to me over the last year, uh, some of them will hit very close to home for you. Um, and some of them, I try to sort of pitch at different levels. There will be a couple of resistance questions that are really, the one is particularly in depth. Um, but, but I think you'll enjoy it. Um, these are my uh, commercial relationships. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of topics. These are just four of them, but um, uh, things that we'll be talking about today. So this is how I organize it. I start with the question, and then I stylize a case. It's not necessarily a real case, because I've found over the years if you get boiled down in a real case, somebody says, well, wait a minute, you said, nah. This is just going to be trying to get to the question. So the first question is, all right, all these choices are out here on what to start. What regimen should I use? So this is a story of a 48-year-old guy who presents newly diagnosed. He's asymptomatic. His HIV RNA is 28,000. His C4 count is 650. He's HLA B5701 positive. His genotype is wild type. No past medical history to speak of, normal renal function, he's okay to start therapy if you think he should. I'll let you digest this for a second, but there's a new generic, is number one, that's low-dose efavirenz with TDF and FTC, and then we've heard a little bit of discussion about dilutegravir 3TC already, and I think the rest of them speak for themselves. At the bottom, there's uh, protease, and then if you don't like any of these choices, go ahead and pick what you'd like. Um, whoops, failed open. I'll let you take control. We're going to be using show tunes because this is Broadway, after all, or West Broadway. And uh, we're going to, I think this, yeah. 
We're going to give it a second. This is when I dance. Um, or I tell, a, I tell a story or something. We're going to go to break. Okay, so um, uh, let's see. There are many jokes that I know that can be told in a mixed audience. So um, I'll struggle here. This is um, HIV. You can tell. That's sort of true. That's sort of true. Um, okay, these are my daughter's jokes. I'll just start with that one. Um, uh, yeah. Another one no, told me last night. Not the talking muffin? Not, not last, last night. Okay, here it is. A grasshopper hops into a bar. Ah, saved by the saved by the. Thank you. I'll finish that at the end. Bookmark. A grasshopper hopped into the bar. Let's go, let's go ahead and vote, and if we can have the music, please. All right, so this is Billy Porter, right? Still on Broadway. It's still showing. Billy Porter's not in here. This is Kinky Boots. Okay, the majority went with um, either a Dalyotegravir or Bictegravir based regimen. Uh, some folks went with, most people went with Integrase. Uh, looks like about 9% went with a Bacavir here. Um, comments, ooh, ooh. <laughs> it's not so much that Obacavir is evil, except that when you have a B5701, it's not such a good choice. So, uh, Amyama, yes. Um, what was wrong with Abacavir? I'm just kidding. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So I think that um, all of us are very aware of what the um, DHHS guidelines for initial therapy and what are preferred regimens for uh, treating um, patients with. Wait a minute. What about the ISUSA guidelines? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can talk about the differences. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, integrase inhibitors, um, raltegravir, elvitegravir, dolitegravir, because the class in general has a much favorable side effect profile, very um, great virologic efficacy, minimal drug-to-drug -drug, um, interaction. And I think some studies have also shown that people who initiate integrase inhibitor, inhibitors compared to protease inhibitor and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors regimen remain on their regimen, so right. they discontinue them much less for side effects. I think there's um, some subtle differences between the integrated inhibitors. So Raltegravir can be those daily, like we know, 1,200 milligrams. People have to take two 600 milligram tablets. So that's you know, three pills once a day. So thinking about you know, single tablet regimen and, and how that's a lot more palatable to an individual starting um, um, HIV therapy. Um, L-Vitegravir has the COBE baggage regards to drug-drug um, interactions. Okay. And granted that this is a healthy male, um, doesn't seem he has other comorbidities, but down the road there might be the need for certain medications that might interact right. with that. Then the big struggle here is between, you know, Dolitegravir and TAF-FTC and the newly approved Bictegravir and TAF-FTC. I think that, again, two pills for Dolitegravir and TAF-FTC and one pill for the newly approved Bictegravir. And the fact that it has, again, doesn't need a pharmacological so, yeah, so let me turn. Do, do folks, other folks on the panel, Mel, do you have any problem one pill versus two pill? Do people complain about that? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Paul has strong feelings about it. So, uh, but, you know, I think the issue of one pill versus two pills uh, has to do with whether there's an adherence issue. but. It also has to do with what this person is able to get through their insurance. Um, 
on and on, we're beginning to see that insurance is a barrier to care uh, because uh, the co-pays and the co-insurance for these drugs are often on the highest tiers of insurance programs. And so I think it's a perfectly good regimen to choose dolutegravir and TAF-FTC, but I think you have to check with the patient to see you know, can they afford to co-pays? Will their insurance actually honor co-pay cards anymore, or are they going to have to pay out of their pockets? Uh, and also, there's a risk of having those drugs get out of sync. So, you know, gosh, I got extra dolutegravir, and, and so I continued to take that. I ran out of that other pill. So, you know, I think these are some of the practical considerations mm -hmm. that go beyond the clinical trial right. data, just to think about. Okay. Tim, what about dolutegravir 3TC here? Um, I think it's an exciting possibility, but, you know, we really need better long-term data, and those studies are underway or have completed enrollment, the Gemini studies. I think the results will be out later this year. Yeah. Until we really have those results, I wouldn't recommend it for routine practice. Right, but this might be the type of person with the viral load and the clear genotype that you might consider doing that. Yeah. Okay. Paul? Well, it, it's also the kind of patient, I know there's no data for initial therapy, but I think the dolutegravir or um, would probably be a... There's not data yet for initial, yeah, for initial right, therapy. but it's used after you started someone. Yeah. It probably ought to work, yeah. Okay, let's move on. Now, take a, one of the questions that you had in your pretest was a, a sort of a trick question um, that was about you start somebody on therapy and within one week their creatinine goes up 0 0.1 to 0 0.15 milligrams um, per deciliter. And most of you went for TDF. And the difference here is that, yes, there will be some, perhaps, in a week that might go up that much. But universally, everyone who's on either dolutegravir or bictegravir will have that increase because of this reason. Uh, and that's the teaching point. So when you get that question again, the author of that question, I'm sure, was intending to make the point that it's inhibit inhibition of this mate one enzyme. Now, when I was in medical school umpteen years ago, I didn't know anything about transporters in the kidney. Those have been discovered in mate one and oct two and several others, uh, oat one. Those are all transporters. And so what these, um, what these enzymes do is they take creatinine from the, from the bloodstream and secrete it into the urine. So we always thought of creatinine as being an estimate of glomerular filtration, and for the most part it is. But there's a small portion that is secreted in bictegravir and dolutegravir and some other drugs, uh, ropivirine, I believe, will inhibit these enzymes, and so that means your creatinine in the serum is going to bump just a titch, and that's the teaching point. So that when you have somebody, you start on these drugs, and you see their creatinine go up a little bit, and more importantly, their creatinine estimated clearance will drop because it's calculated from serum creatinine, right? So you see that, and you kind of go, oh my goodness, what's going on? That's just a simple thing to, to expect. That was the teaching point. And this is an example that on the left-hand side that translates roughly into mil uh, uh, milligrams per deciliter if you had a point, so it's a 0.10 to 0.15 milligrams per deciliter, and this is a dolutegravir study uh, versus elvitegravir, and you see no change in the elvitegravir, but a significant-looking change just within the first couple days after you start. So, so now we're going to the same guy, except this time his viral load is 760,000, 
and a CD4 count is 21, now I've made them HLA-B57 negative, still wild-type virus, otherwise everything's the same. So much more advanced disease. Does that change what you do? It's the same choice as you had before. Let's go ahead and vote. We have one more day to figure it out. The music's making you miserable. see how we did here. Whoops. Sorry, I did that. Yeah, perfect. I should let you do that, Scott. Okay, so what I thought we would see, good news, nobody went for Dalutegravir 3TC, so that sort of becomes iffy, right, when the viral load goes above 100,000. Smart audience is always in New York. Um, some folks went with the Abacavir. What do you, what do you guess? That? Raj, what do you think of Abacavir? I thought that was you know, not supposed to do that if the viral load was high. Yeah, so this is a good case to bring up the question of people with advanced disease, low CD4 count, high viral load. Um, most of our trials actually don't enroll these kind of people anymore. Most of our trials right now are uh, enrolling people with higher CD4 counts and, and somewhat lower viral loads. The point that Mike is making about abacavir, when combined with efavirenz or boosted atazanavir, there was an ACG study that suggested that abacavir was less um, potent than tenofovir-containing regimens with those two particular backbones, efavirenz or boosted atazanavir. More recently, when abacavir has been combined with dolgutegavir, it seems to do just as well as tenofovir. It seems to do fine at high viral loads. So that is a, a reasonable option. Um, the newer drug, the bactegavir option, um, looks just as good as dolgutegavir, but of course we have much less experience with it. Um, we, we don't have that much experience with any of these in a clinical trial setting. My own personal opinion here is I might consider the dolgutegavir regimen with TAF-FTC because I've used it. It's tried and true. Um, it worked well at, at high viral loads and low um, CD4 counts. I think bactegavir, the, you know, the most favored by the audience, is also reasonable. Right. But I just have more familiarity with using dolgutegavir. Yeah, but I think setting, a lot so. of people in the audience do as well. So what I expected to see actually happened, and that is option nine towards the bottom, only about 1% went for a boosted darunavir regimen, but now that the viral load was high and the CD4 count was low, a lot of folks went for that. Commentary? I, ahead, I don't Tim. think that there's really any data to show that protease inhibitors lead to better outcomes in this situation. So I think it's the same for all patients. Something that's easy, well-tolerated is what you would really go for. Yeah. It's interesting to me that sort of I think if we had done this a few years ago, um, before we had a lot of experience with integration inhibitors, probably more people would have uh, thought that the boosted PI was the most potent regimen. I think now we think that integrase is more potent. So the whole reason I put this particular juxtaposed question in our case study is precisely for that reason, that we are sort of um, uh, in a situation where the history of how things were released leaves impressions in our mind about potency or toxicity or whatever. And the boosted PIs came along after the non-nukes were sort of ruling. But that was before efavirenz, right? So it was nevirapine uh, for the most part, or even dilaverdine, which didn't work that well for, the, for some patients with very high viral loads. So here come these really potent boosted PIs. But remember also dilaverdine and nevirapine rarely had 3TC with them. 
right? And so they didn't have the advantages, so they got the, we got the impression that PIs were the bomb, right? They were the, the thing that was the best. The, the truth is, is that all the potent regimens are potent, including the Favrins-based regimens. If you look at data where viral load's above 100,000 or 500,000, a Favrins, at least at its standard dose, has been shown to work. The 400 milligram generic Favrins um, has been released mostly because the tolerability is better, uh, especially among African Americans, uh, and that's, a, that's obviously true in Africa for a lot of populations, and it's what better tolerated, and the potency seems to be about the same. I don't know of data at 400 for high viral loads, but um, we, we just don't tend to be using efavirenz very much anymore. Um, on, uh, yeah, uh, Melanie and then on Yuma. I just wanted to, um, as, as the token southerner on the panel here, um, I, I wanted to point out to Raj that these are exactly the patients who are coming into our clinics um, who are naive to therapy. So I think it's a very pertinent question. It's, it's more in clinical in trials. South. Yeah, our trials but, often aren't. You know, if you look at the median CD4 counts in some of the recent trials, they're, they're much higher, but yeah. absolutely so right. right. Yeah. But the below world, the median, yeah. they're all in the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> New York, they're all above the median. <laughs> so, Anyuma, do you have a... Yeah, I think it's in our experience in our clinic um, that most new starts are integrase inhibitor-based, and I have, you know, training um, residents and fellows um, who are in the clinic who've never... So we're right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just to see how quickly things have changed. Yeah. Jerry. No, I just wanted to make the point, and maybe this is going to be another case, that you're, these are all people starting. We still have, I have, patients who are on the Darunavir and have done very well. Yep. Um, Are you keeping them on that? I have been keeping okay. them on it because um, they've tolerated very well. They've had no metabolic or other problems with it. I think of antiretroviral therapy as lifelong, right. and um, I'll wait until I think there's a need to change. Right. Mike, so can I make a comment? Too? Yeah. <laughs> the, the one caveat that I would say to this, I've seen it time and time again, people on ritonavir-boosted protease or co or the albutegravir regimen, they're prescribed oral cor or um, inhaled corticosteroids, yeah. or yeah. the number of drug-drug interactions is enormous, and it's really hard to, to prevent that. And right. so if you can make things simpler for yourself, simpler for the patient, I think it's something to consider. And that's something I want to amplify, too, with the drug-drug interactions. I'd say in a, you know, HIV transplant literature, um, many of you, some of you may know that in the early patients who were on protease-based regimens, they ended up having a lot of rejection, and that was thought to be a drug-drug interaction between protease, boosted protease inhibitors or protease inhibitors by itself and the calcineurin inhibitors. So uh, that's something that uh, you know, we're very aware of. As yeah, well. that's a great point, Peter. Yeah, no. And also, um, in addition to drug-drug interactions, I think taking into account the comorbidities that the patient might have, for example, hyperlipidemia, and so using a boosted regimen in the setting of hyperlipidemia, when it's not necessary, um, you know, should probably be thought twice, and, and I think right. that's so, important. So I deliberately made the case kind of as clean as I could because I didn't want to get all these confounders. I just wanted to, yeah, so, but those confounders exist in your practice. Um, the more recent guidelines from virtually all sources uh, are mostly in the uh, strand transfer inhibitor-based therapies. Uh, the PI, Darunavir, still sort of is included, at least to date, and, uh, and Rilpivirine. And then coming on the horizon, we'll hear later from Raj about Duravirine, uh, but that's not available to us right now.
And I just want to show this, I showed this last year as well, just to bring home the point, these are annual costs, annual, of these different regimens. And look in particular at, to a second from the bottom, TAF, 3TC, Dalutegravir, $60 annually in Sub-Saharan Africa. And you know, I just raise the point because I think we are in a position we're, you we're, should qualify that, that it's, this is, these are not U.S. costs. No, right, right. That's, that's my point, that these are, and that's appropriate, I think. We're trying to get HIV treatment to as many people as we can all over the world, and costs can be prohibited. But it also can be a barrier here, and I think what I'd like us to do is think a little bit more about uh, some degree of voice about what our patients are paying for the medicines, uh, especially in this day and age. Um, this is just an example of what the cost might be uh, versus what our patients and we are paying. So it's just something to kind of think in mind. And also to bookmark the point that generics are here. They're not just coming, they're here. And we may end up in a situation where our payers are gonna say, well, you've gotta start with a generic first and kind of keep that in mind. Um, the future is kind of now, and we'll see how it plays out. But I just want to give you a scope of where these costs are uh, as far as the international setting and ultimately what we're going to do. Okay, this is more of a hypothetical um, because these don't exist yet. But we've already heard a little bit about long-acting formulations with the Merck drug that, um, that Tim told us about. But there are others coming as either injection or long-acting pills. And this is more of a preference question that based on your practice, and I'm not talking about PrEP here, this is treatment. You got a guy who comes in, um, it's basically the similar guy to the last case, um, B5701 negative, wild type, negative, negative, negative. And let's assume that long-acting agents are available. Which is the type that you think has the most legs? So a long-acting pill formulation, they take one tab a week, and that's the whole regimen. A very long-acting pill, one tab every four to eight weeks. A long-acting injectable, where you get an injection every two months. The idea of an implantable disc, so think about progesterone, like every three to four months you go in and a procedure's done where it's just implanted, where it could be removed if there was a side effect, or you wouldn't use these long-acting formulations at all. Go, go ahead and vote. Way too out of touch. touch. Things have been crazy, been and it sucks and that it sucks we don't that talk that much. Talk that much. Just saying, it's good to be back I in New York. This doesn't fly in Alabama at all. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, let's see what we got. Why would you say that? Okay. All right. So, kind of everything looks decent. Um, any thoughts from the panel? This is the future kind of idea? I think we probably would guess what would we do ourselves. <laughs> well, okay. Do I, how much do I not like shots? Yeah. Uh, one uncovered presentation at Croy was uh, there was a survey in the South where they asked patients this, pretty much this exact question, and people preferred the long-acting pills. Uh, they were a little unnerved by implants, although that could probably be addressed with education. They could talk to Stormy Daniels. <laughs> what? I'm very uncomfortable right now. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> all right. Me too. So, 
I think the, the, the answer that you heard was, what would we do, right? And I think that's the secret here. I think you have to ask the patient yeah. what he or she wants, because all of these are good options. And we've done that. And you're it's, not it's not surprising, or maybe it is surprising, that a lot of people don't want to have injections. And others actually see that as liberating, because they don't have to think about taking pills every day and being no, reminded that, that, that they have HIV. People voted but reflected what they personally would do. I mean, I think exactly. Yeah. So, the, but consider yeah, that they're patients. Yeah. Yes, that's what, uh, that's, I think, what's critical. What is, I mean, these are wonderful options, and it really depends upon what the patient thinks he or she can manage or wants to do. I mean, it may largely come back down to the patient's age or other um, situations with their lifestyle, right? If they're taking a statin every day, maybe they're just going to stick with their one pill once a day. And if they're taking nothing and the reminder of taking a pill either every day or perhaps once a week is just too much, then maybe every two months. It's going to vary, I think, by the person. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think the key is we're going to have more options. We're going to have more options. And that gives patients an opportunity to feel like they have some say in their treatment. I think that's very important that they have an opportunity to choose. You know, a couple of caveats. In terms of the long-acting um, cabotegravir, ropivirine, that is, we're probably going to see next year sometime, um, you can't start directly on that injectable long-acting formulation. There is a period of time that is needed to be sure that these drugs are tolerated. Uh, so generally, in all the clinical trials, actually, there is an oral lead-in period, maybe a month or so, to be sure that there is no toxicity because once they're there, they're there for a period of time, and you don't want to put someone in the situation of having a toxicity that you can't uh, do anything about in terms of removing the drug. And, and the other caveat is I think we sometimes think, okay, we should give these long-acting regimens to people who don't adhere to therapy. But the truth is they have to come back for injections also. And, uh, a drug like cabotegravir has a really long PK tail, and as you get, I mean, you can detect it in blood for a year. So if somebody's not coming back toward the end of that period, they're going to have low levels of drug in their blood, and I don't think we know yet what that will lead to in terms of resistance, but it's something to think about. Yeah, uh, Melanie just stole my thunder because okay. I was going to say that there's a need for right. yeah. well, but but I think there might be differences who you ask. I sure. think um, in, individuals who are initiating therapy may have different opinions from treatment experience patients who are stably maintained on oral therapies may have different opinions about um, switching to some of these therapies. Um, we've had decent, I, I think, you know, in lots of the injectable studies, there have been very, very high rates of adverse events, injection site reactions, et cetera, but that does not seem to deter um, um, patients' interest in receiving so, some of these injectable therapies, which right. is uh, encouraging, at least for the injection. So I think the points are well discussed here, and, and the fact that this is all over the board says that these options are in development. That's good. It could be really good for PrEP. Um, just kind of keep your eye on it, and unlike Laura Ingram, I will apologize for my rude remark and without being prompted <laughs> by a high school. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. How should I counsel a patient with undetectable HIV RNA uh, with uh, sexual transmission risk? So this comes up a lot, right? So you have a 48-year-old guy uh, diagnosed with HIV. He gets started on therapy, and three months later, he comes back and he's doing great. His viral load's undetectable, and his CD4 count's 390. Now, assuming he remains undetectable, 
this is your conversation with him, you tell him that his risk of transmitting HIV to his seronegative partner is zero, virtually zero, very low risk, possible, depends on what regimen you're on, or come on, SAG, I don't like this question. Go ahead and vote. Okay, that was from Rant um, and La Viva La Vibo M, end of Act One. So, all right. Two percent, uh, yeah, I figure that would be it for the answer six. Um, what do you guys do? This is undetectable equals untransmissible. It's pushed hard as a message that we should be giving, but how do we give that message? What? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> so I think one point here is that this patient has, is undetectable at three months. And really the, the wisdom that is accumulating is that people sometimes think undetectable is forever. So you are undetectable, and therefore you are at zero risk. But, but really, um, some of the guidelines say that that undetectable level should be maintained for a year before you're uh, giving people the advice that their, their virus is untransmissible. I, I think that's a little much myself, but I do think it's important to make the point that you know, it requires continual undetectable virus to actually uh, you know, achieve untransmittable. Right, and in rewriting this question, I think the part about no one knows for sure, I think is a little too far. Uh, virtually zero is probably the right answer. I like saying this on that visit mm -hmm. at three months. Mm -hmm. It reinforces the behavior of taking your medicines. Yeah. What I say is, if you keep this up, yeah. your chance of infecting your partner approaches zero. So let's go, let's protect yourself, keep yourself alive, and let's keep your partner uninfected. And it turned it into a positive message that undetectable is untransmissible, but they're responsible for staying undetectable. The data are a little bit uh, scary in terms of those who are undetectable say, staying undetectable, and there were studies at Croy, I think, that were 80% you know, at best, and because if people have problems or whatever, but I think the messaging is really validating to patients, it's somewhat liberating in the sense that it takes that burden off of them. So that's at least how I use it in, in practice. All right, here's a common uh, question or something that we come up with is a patient uh, is evaluated for initial therapy. We're back to that initial patient who we talked about before, B5701 negative, but now the genotype shows an M184V. Uh, it's a woman who's 35, 30 years old, um, She's uh, no significant history. She doesn't have children, doesn't plan to become pregnant. She's okay to start therapy if you think she should. And these are really the same regimens I've already shown you. So let's uh, orient to voting. M184B is present. This is my theme song. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Two weeks and it's all working just the way I knew it would. I don't sit at work just waiting. Anybody know where that's from? It's a good, 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 good thing. Next to normal. Tony Award winner. Yeah. It's a great song. 
Thank you. <laughs> oh, well. Um, all right. Tim, you were talking about this in the question and answer period. It looks like people were listening. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, the first point, it's actually pretty unusual to have transmitted M184V yeah. as the sole mutation. Um, but um, yeah, I think the data that showed the efficacy of two drugs, uh, 3TC plus an integrase or 3TC plus a protease inhibitor, uh, still working very well with M184V makes it reassuring to just use one of the regimens that we had already talked about, TAF, FTC, Dalutegravir, or the Bictegravir uh, single tablet regimen should work just fine. There's additional studies, small studies, uh, cohort studies that suggest that those regimens work quite well with M184V only. Yeah. Here's, here's where I wouldn't use Abacavir 3TC. Mm -hmm. um, we know that the M184V does sensitize the virus to, to AZT, to D4T, and to, to tenofovir, but there is some impact of M184V on a Bacavir sensitivity, so if you have the choice, I would use um, something that doesn't have a Bacavir because of that M184V. Yeah, so the panel made exactly the points I was shooting for. One is that that second option of dolutegravir 3TC is a no-no if there's an M184V. Uh, Tim's point is right. I just did it for illustration purposes. It doesn't happen that much in practice, but the second point was about abacavir, that the viral load now is higher, and you're kind of, you're taking a little bit of a hit. If there was another TAM or two, abacavir would take several hits. Um, the M184V is viewed by some to increase the activity of tenofovir. That plus the fact that these integrase inhibitors, especially dolutegravir, bictegravir, are potent enough to well overcome uh, whatever deficiency that the hit on 3TC or FTC is. So that, that's the point of that. All right, here's the, here's the kind of, this is a case that came up uh, six weeks ago. I got a call from a colleague. What regimen should I be using in a treatment experience patient who has an S147G integrase? Ah, so I'm gonna help you with some data here in a second. <laughs> so a 30-year-old patient shows up. Um, this is the same guy who got, this case got started on Elvitegravir, TAF, FTC, and ultimately, the regimen failed, and two viral loads. This, these, aren't, these aren't blips. This is a real deal. Sent off a genotype, and the only integrase mutation was an S147G, but also had an M184V. So now, the patient and the provider want to continue integrase, but they aren't sure how to do that exactly with that particular mutation. So I'll stop there and we'll let ourselves vote and then we'll, I'll show some data and we'll talk some more and talk to the panel. So let's go ahead and vote. Oh, how does an orphan how bastard does sound? Bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the and squalor. Grow up to be a hero. If you can afford tickets, it's a wonderful show. It really is spectacular. Okay. All right. The majority went with twice daily. Dahlia Tegravir got an integrase mutation. The guidelines, HHS, say that's what you're supposed to do. Let me show some more data. So these are the HHS guidelines. If any mutation in integrase, uh, dolutegravir twice daily is what you're supposed to use. 
These are the ISUSA chart, and you'll notice, you can't see it well, but that second bar coming across is elvitegavir, and in the red box, you'll notice that that S147G is only an elvitegavir mutation. It does not affect, and you go to Stanford database, and you look it up, and it says in the red box, does not reduce raltegavir or dalutegavir susceptibility. Huh. So you got all that information, What's, what's a provider to do? Raj, what do you, what do you think? You know, I, uh, I would probably go with what the audience said. I think I would um, be more comfortable because there may be more mutations that are lurking below the surface that you're not seeing. Now, I admit I don't know that, but um, in this case, he had, I think, a, a pretty high viral load. And a, it based on uh, 128,000, yeah. And he has the M184Vs. Um, uh, so I think I might start with twice-daily dalutegavir, uh, but with this information that we've been exposed to, I might, once he's suppressed, uh, give, be a little bit more comfortable stepping back to once-daily, especially if it makes a big difference in his adherence. So. Yeah, this was, I brought it up because it's A, real world, B, it, it was tough because we all sort of batted this around. We recommended the twice-daily to the patient. The patient didn't want to take it twice-daily. So I thought to myself, well, we could still prescribe it, and if they took it once-daily, that's no different than prescribing it once-daily. But he wanted to do once-daily, so I'll let you know next year if I'm back uh, what, what happened. Suspense. But I, I just brought it up because it, it, it was really interesting. Uh, and, and the guidelines are telling us one thing, but this is a situation that a little bit at odds. All right. Seems like we're starting ARV therapy for everyone now. Uh, what about this rapid? We talked about that a lot this morning. I wanted to get it into a question. So we have a guy who's diagnosed in the ER, and the HIV RNA is unknown, and the CD4 count's unknown. He looks healthy. B57's unknown, genotype obviously pending. The medical history is negative otherwise. Yeah, he'll start therapy if you want him to. Now, would you start therapy on this guy right now in the ER, or would you get it a couple days in the outpatient clinic or within the next two weeks or within the next two, four weeks? What do you think about all this stuff? Go ahead and vote. Come with me to the Emerald City. I am not throwing away my We're still shot. in Hamilton. I am not throwing away my third shot. Song. Hey, I won't just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. King's that's where Jerry went to school, King's College, before it became Columbia. Amazing. With Alexander, With Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. Yeah. It's quiet uptown. Yeah. Okay. All right, so we've got a mix here. Melanie, you're the Atlanta... Right. There's a study, I'll just skip to it, uh, right here from uh, your fair city where they did this in the emergency room and they said, huh, it looks like we're having success here a little bit, a little bit. Well, well actually, um, first of all, you stole my slide. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, no you, I didn't secondly, mean to steal your slide. Secondly, I know you're going to present it. Uh, I wanted you to comment on how does it play in the real world because you won't have time to do that. <laughs> I'd love to mess with you. Um, so, uh, actually, this wasn't um, ART. It uh, started in the ER. It, the Grady Clinic is a huge um, HIV clinic with about 6,500 HIV-positive patients. Um, and as I'll mention in my talk later, uh, the recommendation was made by our task force 
to get people on therapy as quickly as possible within 72 hours. And so Grady took up the call, as did several other clinics. And so what they did was to rearrange all of their clinic structure, basically, to accommodate uh, getting the labs done, not to wait until they're back, doing all the counseling, uh, access to psychosocial assessment, all these things, and then to get them on therapy, um, hopefully same day or within a couple days. So this was actually within their clinic. Um, and, and the interesting sidebar here uh, is that uh, they had to stop it because it was so successful. Um, and that they actually did decrease the time to viral suppression substantially. Uh, it was very popular with the patients. Um, they had not enough staff to accommodate the numbers of patients who were coming in. So I, I think it, it's a very interesting issue. What I would do, I would not, if I were an ER physician in some hospital, I would not necessarily start drugs immediately if you don't have the infrastructure worked out, because it all depends on linkage to yeah. care. It all depends on supporting that patient. So, so you know, that is what, right. where I would go. So, Paul, you, you've done it in San Juan. Yeah, so um, I think what we would do would be to escort this person from the ER to the uh, HIV clinic. Uh, we'd start him in the HIV environment, not in the ER, but we'd start him that day. Right. And that assumes it's five days a week and not all But that hours. requires that right. kind of infrastructure. So yes. I, I don't have the answer, but I accept to say that it, what, matter, what matters is what makes sense and what's feasible and affordable for your situation. I think where the popularity of this came from was from sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of times people lived great distances from the site. And so to get them started that day made sense because the travel back and forth was so hard and they could follow up later. That's a whole different situation than, you know, in Manhattan where a, a trek across Central Park is a long distance commute. And the point is, is that, that, that you can get things done here. You can get things done in Alabama. You can get things done in a, a lot of places where I think just the, the thought is getting them into care quickly. If you can get the baseline labs, great. Um, but we decided not to do this because of the expense. And our ERs, I don't know about yours, but our ERs are pretty crazy, hectic places with a lot of chaos. And it's hard to keep somebody there while we do all this counseling. It just doesn't practically work. But the notion, I think, that we're walking away from all this is rapid, Appointment to the clinic, rapid initiation once they're there, and I think rapid could be within two weeks. I think most people would be happy with that. So well, could I make one comment about um, the, the challenges in South Africa versus the challenges in the U.S. South? Um, we have terrible transportation in Atlanta, absolutely terrible. And if you look at where our clinics are located in geospatial mapping, they're not located where the patients are. And so I think we do have some of these problems with patients actually getting to clinics. So it makes some of this um, a, a little bit, uh, you know, less foreign because these issues resonate for us. Mm -hmm. but, right. but I do think we have to then um, be sure that we address their transportation issues so they can come back. Right. One point I'll make is um, if you don't do it in the ER, and I probably wouldn't either, I'd probably try to get them to the HIV clinic. Um, getting an appointment so that it's one or two days later rather than, you know, leaving it up to the patient to, to get back in. One point to make about San Francisco that Oliver Bacon made in his presentation on the RAPID study 
is the first visit in the San Francisco setting involved insurance issues, um, counseling, et cetera. The first visit average time was about two and a half hours. It was yeah. not so rapid there. So that's another hindrance in the ER, of course. But if you can get them to the HIV clinic and you got the structure, then you get them started. That's right. So um, everyone does it differently. I'm not saying there's, certainly this is not a one size fits all, uh, but something like an intake visit, even if it's not with a provider yeah. or a prescriber on that first visit, getting that information on the first visit is key. Okay, here's a question that uh, I know it already came up here about what is mean by undetectable. Uh, so this is kind of an interesting question that we all face. Should I change a regimen when lower detectable virus is present? So this is a guy who gets referred to you. He was diagnosed 18 years ago with a very high viral load, almost a million, and a low CD4 count. Now his viral load is substantially down. His CD4 count's 525, and his viral load keeps hovering between 20 and never really gets above 100, but it bounces in this range of 62, 85, whatever. So he's been on a number of regimens, almost doesn't matter, but now he's on dolutegravir, darunavir, and 3TC because of resistance and some other things. So his historical tests, resistance tests are available. They're not available, sorry. So here you go. Should you change his therapy now? Yes, no, not sure. Ooh, this is tricky. Anybody been? It's a new play. Probably won the Tony this year. Sounds as, yes, the band's visit. Sounds Israeli, right? There it is. We're waiting for the answers. Waiting, what's new here? You're waiting, I'm waiting, cause that's what we do here. Same as we do every day for something I okay. don't know. Okay, all right. So the vast majority of folks here would not change his regimen. Uh, Anyema, what do you think? Would you change this? Um, I think I agree. I definitely agree with the audience. Um, I think that um, we, we do know that um, very low level viremia like this individual has. I, I guess the way I would approach this with the patient would be first of all to ask about adherence patterns mm -hmm. and make sure that um, they're taking the regimen as prescribed. Um, and second of all, you know, that there are no certain drug-drug interactions, for example, with dolutegravir and people on divalent or things that could be Im impairing the uh, absorption of the drug. So if I clear that out of the way, and this is just an individual who has low-level viremia, I think there's some studies that suggest that um, these individuals go on to have um, higher rates of virologic failure over the long term. Um, but intensification studies have not really right. shown a difference. Um, in, in patient outcomes, and so I think we just don't have enough right. data to support an intensification strategy. So I've gone over this question with this audience before, but the, the thought is that oftentimes when people have very high viral load initially, about a million, the virus gets suppressed, and all we do with antiretroviral therapy is prevent an uninfected cell from becoming infected. But the residual cells that are in the latent pool can be stimulated to produce virus that can spill over periodically, and you can detect that. It doesn't mean there's de novo replication from one cell to the other. It just is spillover from a cell that's chronically infected and will remain so until we get a cure someday. And so this is a common thing that we probably should just watch, I think, reinforcing adherence. But, but most folks, it's a type of person who a long time ago had a very high viral load, and it's unrealistic to expect them to get to less than 20 and stay there, a target not detected. 
The question that may come up, which I don't think we have a full answer to, is will they still transmit? What is that undetectable equals non-transmissible? Um, I don't think we have a full answer for that, but it's probably very unlikely that they would, based on, for example, some data from Uganda in the 2000s with Tom Quinn, where they had uh, discordant couples in the quintile of patients who had 1,000 copies or less did not transmit for the partners, and that's a high value, but that's what was seen. Mike, might you do a DNA resistance test you, here you, to see if you can find any archive resistance? You, you could, it, but I would don't, personally, I'd only do that if I had an intention to change the therapy. And uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely could do that. Uh, but I worry that I might start chasing my tail. The, the general rule of, ther of thumb is that a sustained viral load above 200 is when you should really start thinking. And then if they aren't above 500, then a DNA resistance test would be helpful. All right, so let's go to a pregnant one. This is a question that I asked last year, but the answer has changed. Hmm. Okay. 30-year-old lady, uh, two, two and a half months pregnant on her prenatal evaluation, is found to be HIV infected, viral load 28,000, CD4 650, B5701 negative, wild-type virus, otherwise negative history, first pregnancy, she's okay to start therapy, and you're going to recommend something. Let's go ahead and vote. I'm not wearing underwear today. No, I'm not I didn't write that song. Today. Not that you probably care much about my underwear. How many people have seen this play? Say, right? Oh, it's a great play. It's still showing. I'm not Avenue wearing Q. underwear today. Get a job. Okay. Let's see what we got. All right. Commentary. Anybody really up on the perinatal guidelines? I mean, I, I think that the, the, I think the guidelines still technically are protease inhibitors, if I remember correctly, but there's a lot of emerging data um, in, from Africa about the safety of dolutegravir in pregnancy, the safety and efficacy, so Correct. that looks very good. Yep. I'm just not aware of TAF right. data, so I don't know if other people know. No, there's a good reason you're not aware, because those data aren't out yet. Okay. Um, I mean, right. it, it may come. There is actually a randomized trial that's either started or about to start comparing TAF to TDF in the setting of pregnancy and also comparing dolutegravir to efavirenz, but right now I, I personally wouldn't use TAF because I don't think we have a sufficient information to Right. Support so, issues. Um, in Botswana, they have a lot of data on dolutegravir safety, especially in second and third trimester pregnancy. I think in the U.S., last time I looked, which is a little while ago, was raltegravir was still kind of the integrase inhibitor that had the, it's, you know, the most. It's data. an alternative. So last year I said that dolutegravir and TAF shouldn't be used, and now dolutegravir is an alternative agent, but TAF is still not recommended. That's the take-home. And the concern is this, that the intracellular concentration of the diphosphate and ultimately triphosphate of tenofovir is four to five times higher for TAF than TDF intracellularly. Um, and so the question is, does that have any problem or effect on the fetus? And it's not known yet. I think most people's best guess is it probably won't have any effect, but those data are being collected in the real world and actually in some studies as well. And uh, so we'll see. Uh, the dolutegravir had a, had a similar, there's no teratogenicity, 
but there's also a high placental transfer, and as we've already alluded to, there's been enough data now to make uh, the guidelines group uh, feel much more comfortable recommending it. It's, it's as an alternative, which means it's okay, maybe not frontline, but I don't think you would be wrong in using it. Another question that comes up a lot, um, what do I do with the Bacavir? They're doing well as patients older. 62-year-old guy started on therapy years ago, um, and you took care of him for a while, then he went, moved to California or something, and <laughs> now he's back. And uh, he's been through several regimens, but he's settled in on Abacavir, 3TC, Dalutegravir, and is doing very well. Um, uh, CD4 count is 560, cholesterol is reasonable, uh, HDL, uh, 52 LDL at target. Uh, he is a smoker. Um, his past medical history is negative, no, no family history of cardiac. He's already on a statin and low-dose aspirin. 62-year-old guy. What do you do? Let's go ahead and vote. Yeah, there's a Mind F America coming up. Okay. All uh, right. So 40% would pull George Herbert Walker Bush and not going to do it, not going to change, wouldn't be prudent. Um, other folks are a little bit more liberal. What would our panel do? Tim. I, I, I just think his uh, risk of heart attacks, he's in definitely a higher risk. And so I just don't see the advantage of Abacavir over TAF in this situation. Um, so do we know for sure that Abacavir raises the risk of myocardial infarction? No, there's conflicting data about it. But I think there's really not a, there's no reason that you would say that that would be safer than TAF FTC. So personally, I would switch or recommend a switch. And there was another uh, paper at Croy that showed, again, sort of platelet aggregation associated with the back of ear. I think if you just talk to this patient, I think if he were to really understand the issues, he'd probably want to switch. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing is, um, I think, on the other hand, for TAF FTC, I think um, there are also lipid profile abnormalities that occur with that regimen. Um, I think the argument has been that the HDL cholesterol ratio stays preserved, but we know that LDL, um, total cholesterol... not at a very good range yet. I mean, he's right. still 100. So. Right, could yeah. be elevated yeah. with that, but yeah. I, don't, so, I don't think that we, we have any evidence of that translating to hard cardiovascular endpoints. So just to be clear, there was the switch study I presented earlier that looked at the change in lipids, and there was a slight improvement with... Uh, triglycerides was switching to the pictagravir TAF FTC. Mm. Uh, overall, there was it was pretty neutral. So. Right. So, the points that I wanted to bring out were just brought up, but to reiterate, um, number one, I think what hadn't been said, but it's obvious to everybody, the number one thing that we can do is have them quit smoking, and because whatever else we're talking about pales in comparison to that risk. So that's the most important thing. But assuming he wants to continue to smoke, the platelet story was the first time that there's actually been some degree of biologic explanation, theoretically, for the observed information that we saw out of the DAD study and the NA Accord studies. The 
question, though, that isn't answered is, is some of that platelet issue resolved with him being on low-dose aspirin, right? So nobody knows that. So we're still battling back and forth. My bottom line is I don't know that there's a lot of difference. Um, he's being very well managed uh, with regard to cardiovascular risk. Getting him off cigarettes is the most important thing we can do. And I would, like Paul suggested and others, I'd talk to him and see what he wants to do and go from there. And I try to get his LDL down a bit lower too. I mean, I think 70 would be a better. Yeah. Is there anything too low? <laughs> Four? <laughs> Good luck. Okay. Uh, no cell wall integrity after that. Um, should I switch from a Favren's FTC to an Afavir? Somebody's been on it for a while. So this is a lady who comes in. She's been diagnosed 14 years ago. CD4 count was 36,000. Oh, sorry, HRNA was 36,000. CD4 was 15. Been undetectable. Has a very nice CD4 count now. Back in the days before there was fixed dose total combination, there was a Favren's with FTC Tenofovir DF, um, got the single tablet regimen in 2006, doing great. Creatinine 0.8, EGFR is greater than 60. She feels fine. You ask her every way you can, do you have any problem with this drug? <laughs> no. Why do you keep it bothering me? No. DEXA. Yeah. So what would you do? I dreamed there was an angel who could hear me through the wall. This is from Spring Awakening. Out, like in Latin, this is and I say this to my patients all the time. Me out, out they say, you know, it hurts my shoulders hurt in her 60s. Shoulder hurts. The name of the song is The Bitch of Living. So I say, that's just the bitch of living. Let me teach you how to handle all the sadness. It's just a bitch. Okay. So, who on the panel wants to defend keeping her where she is? So, anybody? Maybe. All right, Jerry, you got it. Yeah. Well, well I think the one thing that you didn't present was the DEXA scan. I mean, if she had normal bone density on this regimen, then you could have more rationale for keeping her on. Okay. Okay. Um, I, you know, I'm very conservative. I think that's apparent. And um, I discuss it with her. Uh, a lot of my patients say, I'm not going to switch. Yeah. Under any circumstances, look how well I've done. Why do you want me to switch? So like, let's see what she has to say. It's like Terryton. I'd rather uh, fight this. On the way. other hand, you know, we've all had situations as well where patients have switched from a regimen that they thought yeah. they didn't have any side effects, that's and they true. say, oh, wow, right. no, that's true. I feel better. But so who on the panel wants to take the switch? I vote. Raj. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm largely with what Tim said. I think um, she's, she may or may not be postmenopausal, but she is 55. We know that if you switch from off of TDF, you get a couple of percentage points back, back in your bone mineral density, two to three percent, which is almost similar to starting a bisphosphonate. So certainly before I, I mean, that might be the way to do it. If, if mm -hmm. the option is she's got osteopenia and bisphosphonate versus switching, I would definitely switch. But, so, yeah, it's, but it's hard to make someone who feels well, you know, make them yeah. feel better, although I like so it sounds like you're this mostly leaning on the tenofovir DF part of it than you are the afavirans part of it. 
Yeah. I mean, fibrins has some deleterious lipid effects, so I, I can't remember if you showed us yeah, your lipids or not. But that, you know, those are the kind of real life things I would go through with. Right. Them, so so I, it's a judgment. I bring it up yeah. because we see it, we yeah. hear it, and the answer is whatever you and the patient want to do. Uh, the rationale has been well described, and I think you could defend yourself either way. Should I recommend coming off of disability for a fully functioning patient? Anybody ever had that question? Wow. And I thought, I've got to put it in this year. i just got to, right? It, it's crazy, right? So a 52-year-old guy, started on therapy years ago, returns to you after, after care for four years, um, and he's been through several regimens, but now he's settled in on this uh, one tablet, uh, Dalutegravir. And he's doing great, and he's been on SSI disability since 1999. You know, he was, you know, going to party, I guess, like it's 1999. He was first diagnosed back in a horrible time. But he's done well, and here he is, and he's fully functional, and he volunteers at a homeless shelter five days a week. Okay? So now he's brought you in his paperwork for his disability to confirm it, you know, here, fill these out and I'm going to be on my way. And you say, sure, happy to. Or you say, gee, I'll support you, but I can't lie on the forms. And I'll fill them out, but based on your current functional status, I can't really say you have a disability or some other option. What do you guys do? Come with me. I want to know that other option. <laughs> hmm. It's the wheels of a dream. Ragtime, Coalhouse Walker Jr. It's a good song. Not sure what it has to do with disability, but okay. All right. Um, wow. Panel. Peter, what would you do down there? Maybe I'm two West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Thoughts? Well, disability doesn't get you that much. I mean, it's about a thousand bucks a month. Um, you could get a lot of jobs and make more that. than a thousand bucks a month. He's participating in society now. I mean, I, I think that I agree with the 51 percent. I think, um, first of all, the doc doesn't determine disability. Uh, SSA does that. Um, and so I think you, you have to be honest in the forms that you sign your name to. Right. And, and generally, I think they don't say, is this person disabled? You can have the option telling what the person can do, and then SSA will. Yeah, and you, you chaired a disability I'm, panel I'm for right now. <laughs> oh, you're doing yeah. another one. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a lot of thought. So it turned out that the way that disability is determined for HIV uh, changed about um, two years ago maybe less. Uh, it hadn't changed since 1993, and it was still all about, you know, cryptococcal meningitis and cryptosporidiosis and wasting syndrome, none of which is relevant anymore. But I think, uh, but the issue really is, is this person functional? Um, and it sounds like he is, and so I think I would encourage him to kind of re-engage in society and see about working. Yep. Okay, so I think that's 
the answer. The, the, I raised the same question in Atlanta, and it was fascinating. Somebody stood up and said, yeah, but what's going to happen to that disability, uh, that homeless shelter? You know, they're, they're going to lose their volunteer. <laughs> okay. But it has come up. I think, you know, answering honestly is all we can really do. We're, we will be the patient's advocate, but we, we can't lie. You know, you can't, if they're fully functional, they are. And, but on fairness, it, it's sometimes scary and hard to come off a disability because what, what if it doesn't work in the workplace? Can they go back? And our system isn't really well set up for that, so Paul and his IOM panel will fix that for us. <laughs> All right. All right, and this is the last question. Um, I'm sure you never had anybody like this, but who's got chronic <laughs> neck and shoulder pain. I'd just say the bitch of living, but it doesn't help too much. So the same person uh, sort of as before, but um, renal and liver functions are normal, has been on their regimen for a while, and he's complaining of chronic neck and shoulder pain for over five years. Uh, an MRI showed moderate osteophytes and some uh, foramen narrowing in his neck. Um, but there's no clear indication for a surgical intervention, no loss of function. And he's been on MS cotton, 40 milligrams twice daily for over four years, and uh, immediate release morphine for breakthrough pain. His pain's not responding anymore. Um, he says he needs a higher dose. So in addition to referring to physical therapy, what are you going to do? Are you going to um, continue the pain regimen as is and augment with non-steroidals or increases morphine, uh, reduces morphine, changes pain regimen, um, start methadone as a replacement? You can do that for pain um, or some other option. Go ahead and vote. Mm. People spend their days crammed inside. It's a great place if you haven't seen it. Come from the right. We got the TVs going 24-7 in the cafeteria, and the more they watch, the more scared and angry they get. So, briefly, that place got 12 or 13 actors that play over 200 characters. And they just changed by putting on a hat or a mask or something. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, so as I thought, um, some other option, which means refer them to your colleague. <laughs> I think. Hey, I got this great patient I'd like you to see. Uh, sorry, I got to go to the airport. Um, yeah. So panel. I mean, I think one thing that you really have to clarify with the request for increased pain medication is something going on. It's something changing about the use of the opiates. That's. Uh, is it the person becoming, if it had been really stable and then there's a sudden increase that could be worsening of the addiction and some other problem that needs to be discovered and addressed. Yeah, or it may just be, as we know, that you get tolerant to opiates and so this person is over time getting tolerant, which is one reason if there was another option, some non-opiate right. medicine um, that we could go to, they don't get tolerant to it. I think there was a study recently, I don't know all the details, comparing opiate therapy to non-steroidals and uh, acetaminophen and, you know, at the end of a year it was actually better to not be an opiate therapy, something we all know, but this is a tough one. I would love to know who's, what the some other option was because that's what I'd use. Yeah. Stay I, tuned I, for I, the last talk in the course. I, yes, I, I, so, so that, was a, that was a pitch. Uh, Petros is coming, uh, the psychiatrist at Rutgers is going to talk about this. So this was the um, kind of 
uh, prep to get everybody to stay here for the entire <laughs> but I do thing think you're because doing he's going to address this. If you augment, yeah. increase the opiates, I, I think that that really should not right. be. Yeah. 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 Can I didn't give it. Oh, I didn't give it. But but I mean, I, I think the the question here is is a general medicine question that, and you know, with the opioid quote crisis, which it is, there's more people almost dying a year from opioids overdoses more. and suicide than in one one year than in the entire Vietnam War. So there's a lot of deaths out there. Um, so increasing, I, what I do know is that increasing the pain medicine has no benefit. It, it causes more harm. So that I don't think is a great option. Um, and most of you didn't go with that. So just one thing that I've seen in the, in the news lately that there are bills advancing uh, that would apparently kind of put an absolute cap on how many morphine right. equivalents you're allowed to prescribe, yeah. which would, could and, be a really yeah. a problem. And the unanswered question there is how many more heroin overdoses will we have because people can't get yeah. the opioids. Uh, yeah, so we got a big problem. So these are, this is what I went over, and as you're pondering that, we got about six or seven minutes and a lot of questions. So quick questions, quick answers. Um, is there any place in therapy for the efavirenz 400 milligrams, 3TC, TDF? Raj. What I know about it is in the Encore study uh, led by the late uh, David Cooper, um, uh, that 400 milligrams of fibrin did just as well as the 600 milligrams that we've given forever. Um, the question is, since we've moved away from efavirenz for other reasons, the lipid issues, the suicidality issues, there was a second study that was reported out recently from START that also supported the idea that people on efavirenz had more suicidality. So there's two independent studies. I, I don't personally think there's a role for it unless it's cost-driven. You know, yeah, and it's used a lot in Sub-Saharan Africa yeah, and, and yeah. quite successfully. Uh, the other point is that for those of us with gray hair who were around in the late 90s uh, when it was DMP-006 or even L697661 from Merck, um, the drug, the dosing was never really well established, so they went with a higher dose just because it was higher. Um, should we be switching every patient from TDF to TAF? Yes. Yes. Most people agree. With the caveat of cost. <laughs> you know, At cost. Okay. Obviously big. Revenue product. neutral. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if a woman on TAF becomes pregnant, should we change the TAF to something else? Like that woman who shows up at 2.5 months and she's already on TAF. What are you going to do? No one knows the answer. I had a woman like this a couple of months ago, and I did switch her to TDF just because I didn't know the answer, and I knew that yeah. TDF is okay. So that's, that's what I did. But, you, know. I, you don't want to mess with efavirenz, for example. If someone is on efavirenz, you don't want to necessarily mess with that if, if you think that their adherence might be compromised. That's actually explicitly said in the guidelines, right. is don't mess with success in pregnancy. But I, that's, right. that's what I did. Here's a question about undetectable, untransmissible. If, if a patient has gotten in the habit of using condoms regularly, do you tell them to stop using a condom? <laughs> no. I, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think that the issue of un, untransmissible should be part of a larger sexual health conversation about go. transmission of other STDs and the other roles, uh, possible benefits for condom use. It becomes a little tricky when um, 
couples want to use this for contraception, yeah. and that becomes an issue around do we feel comfortable in you know several different partnerships where um, an individual is oppressed to allow them to? Because I think it takes a couple of tries to get pregnant. Right. So. I think the take-home point is it depends on if they have one single partner and monogamous, then perhaps they could. But the STI rates, as you know, are skyrocketing, and it's a big problem. Um, how can you, how do we deal with disclosure issues? Somebody's in the ER, they just found out, I mean, this is a mind-blowing diagnosis, and you got a lot to counsel them on. How in the world do you do that in the emergency room? I guess you don't. Um. Well, you know, I think this speaks to the issue of the more we're asking ER departments to do HIV testing, the more we have to build in the support for the patients when they're positive because um, there is not yeah. a lot of time for those staff to handle this. We have to have other staff who can help and, and make a warm handoff to an HIV clinic. Okay, should, uh, should we get patients to undetectable before um, using long-term maintenance therapy? And, it, it, right now, that's what's being done with the injectable. Yeah. Uh, the question will be, as you're, it's a preview of coming attractions for the MK8590 something drug, I forgot the number, but the long-acting Merck drug that, um, that Tim alluded to, there's no option for that. You just have to start with it, right? Yeah, so I'll mention it in the, uh, right after lunch, but this trial going on with EFDA, a little easier to say, is um, uh, for initial therapy. Um, the trial that is uh, led to approval for switching is the uh, dolutegravir reclivirine regimen, the, the SORD trial, which I'll show. And that one you, you have to wait till they're uh, biologically suppressed. And I do believe okay. the cabotegravir reclivirine studies largely also get them to undetectable and then switch them to maintenance. So it's really an induction maintenance kind of okay. idea. And so those maintenance regimens we'll talk about a few. Right. So we're, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, there is one comment back to me appropriately, um, sorry, uh, about my earlier comment, but this is a Stormy Daniels comment, and this, the card reads, when someone asked Stormy if they were real, she replied, well, you're not imagining them, are you? So I guess we'll close on that note, and I apologize for being so culturally insensitive. It is what she said. Thank you all very much. Thanks to the panel. Yeah.